right, good morning. Hi, my name is Dominique, and would you guys stand up for the scripture reading? Scripture today is from Exodus 20, verses 1 to 6. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other... Makes more sense. (laughs) You must have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself. No No form whatsoever of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. I punish children for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Thanks. Let's pray. Lord, you are here in this place. You are present. Um, Wake us up to that. Wake us up to that this morning. We invite you to, for those of us who have come in here strong, we invite you to um, unsettle us a little bit, um, challenge us, break bones that we've been walking strangely on and unhealthily on, and um, make us uh, bring us into deeper and fuller life. Those of us who are weak this morning, we invite you to whisper gospel to us this morning. We invite you to, um, to comfort us and... Um, and to make your presence known, we thank you that you are indeed here and that you uh, speak. You are the God who speaks. And so right now, um, please clear m- me out of the way or, um, or, or come and infuse these words with some sort of power because I don't have any power. Um, we are all eager and hungry to hear not from um, any person in the room. We're eager and to listen to you. So come speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. My name is Brett Davis. I'm a volunteer pastor here at New Life Manitou. I just decided to run with that title because you got to introduce yourself some way. And can I make a confession to you guys? Is that okay? Like right now here in this place, and the church isn't typically the place where we're honest, but um, can we just be honest for a second? Uh, I'd like to make a spiritual confession, uh, like a church confession, a God confession. I don't like God being invisible. I don't, like, I don't like God being invisible. It's so obvious that we don't think about it a lot of times. You know what I mean? We don't think about it. Well, of course that's what God is like. Of course God's invisible. How would it be anything else? But can I be honest? Like more, um, most days it like really, really bothers me. It troubles me existentially in my soul. I'm one of these tortured souls who walks around. I'm an INFJ and I walk around. Myers-Briggs for anyone. Uh, yes, INFJs in the house. We rock. Um, team us. Uh, God is invisible. <laughs> and as a, as a general rule, um, you don't see God. We are saying songs this morning. Um, but as a general rule, we're singing to somebody that we, we don't see. In those seasons um, when life is falling apart, 
when we feel lonely or betrayed or broken, and you finally like come in your front door and you drop to your knees in exhaustion and prayer, and, like you're just broken, and, and you look up, you don't see Jesus like sitting on your ottoman, right? As a general rule. Uh, I mean, I know that there's kind of funny stories out there, and I, like I'm envious of them, but like as a general rule, God's in- invisible. Uh, and in those seasons of life that are like when life is just like bursting forth in such like profound blessings that you like want to just like burst forth in song, you just want to like greatest showman it, you know? You just want to break out in, in song. Um, the clouds in those wonderful times, they don't generally like separate like with rays of light and show God's face like smiling down on you or something like that. When my daughters were born, um, it was like one of these like, those of you who have had kids in the room, it's one of those these moments of like deepest kind of transcendence and most profound miracle, but I couldn't see God. I couldn't see God, even though I'm like this, I've got this miracle in my arms. And on the darkest nights of my life, when I wondered, how can I go on? Can I even go on? I couldn't see God, even though my, my deepest being wanted to be like desperately, I desperately ached to be held in his arms. I couldn't see God. I've been to seminary, and uh, I have a master's degree in all this, whatever the heck that means. I know all the right answers to like these. I know the technically right answers to why God is invisible. I know I, I could hear somebody say, well, God the Father is immaterial, omnipresent, indefinite, uh, infinitely qualitatively different than anything in space-time. And God the Son, Jesus, has ascended into heaven, and he's the first of the human race who has entered into a new mode of existence where he is going to be pulling us one day. And the spirit, the spirit of God is like the wind. The wind, we can't see the wind, but we can see what the wind does. But you can't see the wind itself. But like these kind of technical, intellectual answers that like are in books or something like that to to questions like this, why is God invisible? They're not very satisfying. <laughs> they, they, they kind of fall flat when you're flat on your back, right? <laughs> like when you're flat on your back in pain, um, those, those answers about why is God invisible don't mean, or, when, or, or more when those you love are in pain. If you've ever watched a loved one suffer or you look around in the world and you see suffering, <laughs> those technical answers they might be correct but like they don't like resonate deeply with your soul and so i guess um like that's my confession to you this morning um i struggle frequently with the invisibility of god struggle uh, frequently. Maybe some of you uh, struggle with it too. I know God's invisibility actually is like a huge hurdle to a lot of people, to a lot of people who would like genuinely like love to believe. They'd love to have faith, but it's hard to trust something that you can't see, isn't it? 
if my uh, confession is your struggle, know that we're not alone. Um, The people of God have actually always struggled with God's invisibility. That's why the very second commandment that God gives his people here in Exodus 20, um, he gives them from their very inception here. He's creating a people at the foot of Mount Sinai. And he says, verse four of Exodus 20, he says, do not make an idol for yourselves. The King James says, do not make a graven image. Do not, don't make something. You're tempted, God's saying, you're tempted to carve up something, to try to like make an image of me so that you can be more certain so that you can be more certain of my presence. You're going to be tempted, God's saying here in Exodus 20, you're going to be tempted to be like all of your neighbors and to make an image of the mysterious elemental forces out there of sky, verse 5, or verse uh, 4, of sky, earth, and sea. You're going to be tempted to make, to carve something up, the sun, the storms, the fertile soil. Don't do it. Don't make an image. Don't carve an idol. It's the second commandment God gives, and it's the first commandment we break. The people of God, the Israelites, um, are like fresh from their rescue and slavery. They've watched Moses ascend to the fiery top of Mount Sinai to receive direction on, you know, what it means to be God's people in the world. And they've watched him go up and they've waited just a little bit, a time, and they're here in Exodus 32. There's a lot of talking that happens between Exodus 20 and Exodus 32, but it's where the narrative picks back up. And uh, the, the Israelites are like waiting on Moses, and they say, hey, you know, all of this watching and like waiting and ambiguity and uncertainty it's kind of lousy. We don't like this at all. Hey, wouldn't it be great if we could see God? Wouldn't it be great if we had something we could see, touch? Moses' brother, he was the guy there with Pharaoh and like all of that. He was speaking for Moses that whole time. Yeah, Aaron. Aaron. Hey, Aaron, come over here. Would would you mind making, this is verse one of Exodus 32. Uh, Would you mind making us something that we can see? Would you mind doing that? It's too hard. It's too complicated. It's too mysterious. It's too strange to worship an invisible God. (laughs) To to worship a God we can't see. And so they craft a, a golden calf. It's an iconic kind of story. They craft this golden calf out of jewelry so that they can see Yahweh. It's not that they're worshiping some other God. That was commandment one. This is actually that they, when you read the story closely in Exodus 32, it seems that they're wanting to worship Yahweh with something that they can see. They're not trying to abandon the God who rescued them. They're just trying to have some sort of certainty about the God who rescued them. Aaron, brother of Moses, creator of the golden calf, says here in Exodus 32, uh, verse five, he unveils this image and he says, let's have a festival to, well, there it is. It says to the Lord, to Yahweh, is what he says. We're not trying to abandon God here. Uh, We just need a God who will, like, stay put. 
right there that we can see, that we can touch, that we can be certain about? Why don't we, there, there's something lacking in the world. God's invisible. Something lacking, let's add something to the world. Let's add visibility to God. Let's add stationary to God. While we're at it, that's what it feels like, doesn't it? It feels like that's, that there's something missing in the world and that like, we could somehow like, add something to God. Idolatry always feels like we're adding something to the world. It always feels like we're adding something to our lives, like we're adding something to God. No big deal. Let's add visibility to God. Let's add stationary to God. Let's add certainty to God. Let's add manageable to God. While we're at it, let's add silent to God. Let's add powerless to God. Let's add dead to God. <laughs> Idolatry, it feels like addition. It feels like this solution to a problem, like there's something lacking in the world and that we're going to fix it somehow. Idolatry feels like addition, like we're adding something to the world or to God or to our lives, but idolatry is always subtraction. Idolatry is always subtraction. At its heart, we could say it this way, at its heart, idolatry is when we shrink the sacred. Idolatry is when we shrink the sacred, when we shrink the great... <laughs> I just have to acknowledge it. It takes the tension out. Uh, we shrink. Idolatry is when we shrink down the sacred mystery of this life we're given, of the God who created us. We shrink the great mystery of God, thinking that we're somehow going to improve on life, on God, on this world. But idolatry is not how we add to the world. Idolatry is how we make the world smaller. Idolatry is actually how we make the world... Usually, at the heart of idolatry, usually at the heart of idolatry, what we're trying to do is we're trying to make life safer in some sort of way. We want to feel safe. We want to feel certain about something. We want, to we want to feel safer about the world, but what we succeed in doing is making the world not safer, smaller. You can, you can see it clearly. I mean, in the ancient world, it was like a clear example of it is somebody would take a bit of the world, some wood or some gold or something like that, and they would carve it. They would carve something, something in the sky or the earth or the sea, and they would call what they've created the creator. <laughs> Somehow this is the gods. This is connected to the divine realm. They would whittle some wood and, to worship. They'd whittle some wood and worship an image of the sun god, perhaps, a statue of the storm god, a figurine of fertility, perhaps. Whittle up some wood, some of the elemental forces of this world that are so mysterious and so dangerous. And once you've got them there on your shelf, somehow you feel like, okay, they're a little bit more manageable. I've got some sort of like influence on them. I've got some sort of sway over it. You felt like you were making your life a little bit safer when you, when you participated in that form 
of idolatry. It's easy to see idolatry in the ancient world. It involved actual like figurines and stuff. But carving graven images, carving, like making a physical sort of idol that you could see or touch or, you know, I was about to say taste, but who's the freak over there licking the idol? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, it's like a, that making an idol is actually an outward sign of an inward sickness an inward sickness inside of all of us. It's just one, creating something physical. A graven image is actually just one of the many ways that we're tempted to subtract from God, to subtract from the sacred, to shrink the sacred. The warning against idolatry, it's the second commandment God gives And it's not only the first commandment that we break, it is the most frequent commandment that the people of God break throughout the whole Hebrew scriptures, throughout the history of Israel's story. Over and over, the prophets of Israel would call Israel, they'd call the nation out and say, hey, hey, I know you're not carving up anything, but you've fallen into idolatry hey, you've fallen into idolatry again. <clears throat> but just as often, they would, as committing idolatry with like figurines, they would do it in kind of like a less tangible way, in a less touchable sort of way. Um, radical preoccupation with physical pleasures. I'm talking about sex, guys. <laughs> radical preoccupation with physical pleasures like sex or food, or comfort, or any kind of pleasure. It gets, when you're radically preoccupied about it, guess what the prophets call it? Idolatry. We'll do a little call and response here. Greedily pursuing material goods. Talking to America here. Thinking that money and resources and retirement plans and umbrella insurance policies can give us ultimate security in the world. Guess what the prophets called it? That's right. For those of you who are wondering, is he ever going to take a drink? That's that was my my tactic. I'm smart like that. Trusting, <laughs> I'm an idiot. Uh, trusting powerful militaries, trusting in powerful militaries and chariots and tanks and bombs and violence to keep the world safe, that that's the way the world is going to be secured. It gets denounced by the prophets as Idolatry, that's right. Israel struggled with the same three idols that we all struggle with, with sex, money, and power. Those are the big three. We discover something good. I'm not, I'm not the only one who struggles with this, am I? We, dis- we discover something good in the world, something good and beautiful, like sex or like food or like some sort of pleasure. And then we like, we find it and we pursue it, don't we? Like, we're like, oh man, that's great. We pursue it without consideration for God or for the fully human life that God wants for all of us, a life of like honesty, of intimacy, of commitment, of deep relationship, of 
profound health on, on, on every level. Somewhere along the line, we have begun worshiping the wonder of creation rather than the wonder of the creator. Our lives shrink in the process, don't they? We take something like altogether good, like, um, like money is something that's, that can be helpful. We take something that we want, it's altogether good like security or provision or daily bread. And we notice, oh, money can help me get those things. And so we chase after it and we make it supreme. We work longer and longer hours. We add more and more to the bank account. We think that we're adding to our lives. We, we think we're adding to our families' lives. We think we're adding something to the world. But if we got honest, somewhere along the line, we shrunk the sacred. Somewhere along the line, we shrunk the sacred. The reality that God provides for you. God provides for us his sacred gifts of family and leisure and friendship, the sacred practices of play and generosity. They have evaporated. They're gone. It's not just God that's gotten smaller. See, that's the thing. It's not just God that's gotten smaller. It's actually life itself has gotten smaller. When the sacred creator shrinks, the sacred life that he gives us shrinks too. It shrinks too. And so in the traditions of Israel, <clears throat> we find the harshest kind of condemnations of idolatry. It's, it's the first commandment we break. It's the most frequent commandment that we break. And it's got all kinds of forms. We shrink the sacred in all kinds of ways. And so the psalmist writes, this is good. The psalmist writes in Psalm 115, he says, why do the nations say, where is their God? The nations are looking at Israel and being like, their God's invisible. They're a bunch of nutters. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases, but their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them God help us. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them, is the way the prophet denounces. The prophets and the psalmist invite us to recognize that there is a direct, if you're taking notes, there is a direct correlation between what you're worshiping and what you are becoming. There's a direct correlation between what you worship and what you become. If it's not God, then it's probably some form of sex or food or money or influence or power or something. We could say it this way. Um, <clears throat> we could say it this way. Our devotions eventually define us. Our devotions eventually define us. What you are supremely devoted to eventually defines you. 
<laughs> That's sobering, isn't it? Like, because if idolatry is always subtraction, what's that say about our lives? We're subtracting from God. We're subtracting. The, the second commandment warns us in the strongest of terms. Like we heard it read, didn't we? It warns us in the strongest of terms against shrinking God, against shrinking the sacred, against shrinking down what we are most devoted to because you're not actually shrinking God at all. God stays the same regardless of what you think about him. You're shrinking down you. I'm shrinking down me. We're shrinking this sacred life that God has given us. In the ancient world, it was common for like a, work, a woodworker to like whittle something to aid in worship. You know, he's whittling that thing to, but the wisdom of God comes along and says, hey, you realize that worship's whittling you too, right? Worship is whittling you too. What we worship whittles us. It whittles us, it shapes us, it makes us. You realize, of course, that the things that you are most devoted to in life will come to define your life. That's what you will be become. Make sure it's not shrunken. Make sure it's not empty. Because when we're devoted to something empty, we're empty. We wind up empty. What obsesses us eventually possesses us, if you want it to rhyme. Some people like that. <laughs> Don't. Be mindful of what you're devoted to because it will define you. I think that's what the bit at the end of this text here is actually um, talking about when it says in verses 5 and 6, it says that God is passionate. God is jealous. And there are... I think it's saying that there are profound consequences when we shrink the sacred. It's a way of communicating how distorted and broken and truly inhuman our lives become when we devote ourselves to the less than ultimate, to the less than ultimate. And God won't stop it. God won't force you to orient your life around him. He'll, he'll let it happen. And I think that this, the end of this passage is it's communicating that our broken, distorted lives affect those around us, is what it's saying. To the third, verse five, to the third and fourth generation is what it says. Well, that's typically how many generations are alive at a particular time. It's saying, I think, that your life affects your parents and their parents. Your life, your choices affect your kids and their kids. To the third and fourth generation, this stuff has influence. I hear, I hear the end of this passage about the jealousy and the passion of God, and my tendency is to like get super uncomfortable I'm like, right? Like, I'm like, oh, God's a jealous God. God's a passionate God. I don't know about that. But I promise you, and this is where we're going this morning. I promise you, we're here, by the way. <laughs> uh, we're not going there. <laughs> I don't know what's going on this morning. I promise you, even though it makes us uncomfortable, the jealousy and the passion of God are at the heart of the gospel. God, brothers and sisters, God 
loves us. God loves you jealously. He loves this world jealously. He will not share us. He will not allow us to settle for shrunken devotions or shrunken lives or shrunken futures. God is passionately, jealously devoted to you, to setting you free from slavery and you being fully and forever alive. And so in the fullness of time, the invisible God made himself visible. One early Christian uh, put it this way. It'll be right here on the screens. Um, God rescued us from the control of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. He set us free through the son and forgave our sins. The son is the image of the invisible God the one who is first over all creation. Verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to live in him and he reconciled all things to himself through him, through Jesus. Whether things on earth or in the heavens, he has brought peace through the blood of his cross. The, what's been entrusted to the church is that the invisible God has given us something to look at. God has given us something to look at, to gaze at, to worship. He's given us himself in Jesus. The good news entrusted to the church is that the invisible God has already done it. It is finished. He has already set us free from the powers of darkness by bearing the weight of darkness himself. We look at a human being, at Jesus of Nazareth. You look at him pouring out healing and peace into everyone possible, everyone hungry or thirsty for it, even to the point of shedding his own blood. You look at Jesus and that is the passion of God on full display. That is what God's jealousy drives him to. The good news, the gospel, if you want it this morning, is that God loves idolaters. He loves idolaters. He, that's good news because it's all of us. All of us are living shrunken, broken lives. If you want to see the fullness of God, it dwells in the person of Jesus. If you have shrunken the sacred and find yourself empty because of empty devotions, God loves you. God loves you jealously. God has shed his blood to bring you peace and is already... He's already at work in your life by his spirit to expand your life into what it was always meant to be. That's what God's always been like, by the way. God calls Aaron, brother of Moses, creator of the golden calf. He calls Aaron to be the first high priest of the nation of Israel. The first idol maker in Israel becomes the first true worship leader of Israel. How's that? How's that for grace? 
Your passion and instincts were right, Aaron. They were just shrunken. They were just shrunken. Try this life on for size. This will make you more truly you. And I think that's the Spirit's invitation to all of us this morning. Try on the life of Jesus. This will make you more truly you. It'll mean turning our backs again and again on all the things that we think are going to add to our lives and, and that we devote our lives to. And it'll mean devoting our lives to something really kind of strange, really strange looking. It'll mean devoting our lives to giving of ourselves, to self-giving, self-emptying love. Empty yourself. Give yourself away for others. Yes, that person, that person in your life that you've been preoccupied with, that's the image that God gives us because that's what God is like. Loving others sacrificially, seeking their good above your glory. Turn the other cheek. Go two miles instead of one. Give your life away. Love, love, love with every breath. It's hard because the gospel offers us a life that looks like subtraction. The gospel offers us a life that looks like subtraction, but it's actually addition, or it's multiplication, or it's factoring up, or it's exponents, or it's limits approaching the infinite. If you're into calculus, we are invited to gaze at Jesus, to worship Jesus, to empty our lives and try on the self-giving life of Jesus, to become like Jesus, as free and alive forever as Jesus. And so maybe we could just bow our heads this morning um, as the band comes up. Perhaps this morning, if you got honest, um, your deepest devotions in your life are leaving you empty. You're hungering for something and you're pursuing sex, money, power, whatever it is. It's idolatry is what scripture would say. And you've you're shrunken. This morning you feel, you feel it in your bones. You're becoming something less than you, less than what God created you to be because the obsession is possessing you. Maybe this morning um, is a good time to talk to God about it. Maybe it's a good time to talk to somebody else about it, to one of our prayer team in a few minutes, maybe to somebody you love. Maybe you're here this morning and you are really struggling. It, like, no joke, it's no laughing matter. You're, the invisibility of God is a really big deal, and you just can't shake it. You'd love to believe, but you just can't. Can I encourage you this morning? Can I encourage you to look at Jesus? Jesus is the solid image we're given. Dig deep. Commit yourselves, do the research if you need to, and you'll discover something solid in Jesus of Nazareth. He's what we gaze at until our faith becomes sight. And so, Father, um, 
May you set us free from all of the shrunken desires that we pursue. May you expand our shrunken lives so that they can become fully and forever alive and shaped like your son, Jesus. God, we are powerless to do this, and so we ask that your spirit be at work in us doing this. Grant it, we pray, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.